Hi everyone, this is Jason and welcome to the Bold Moves Only podcast. So the story of how I came to do this episode is pretty interesting. A few months ago, I was working on a group project on reproductive politics and one of my partners asked me if I had seen the report on women in ice centers getting involuntarily sterilized and I looked into it and not only was it appalling, but it led me down a rabbit hole and I must have spent the next five hours just reading about the history of eugenics and forced sterilization in the United States. For those who don't know, eugenics is essentially the sterilization of those individuals who were considered to be inferior or dangerous. And those people deemed as such were the poor, the disabled, the mentally ill, and people of color. It was extremely rampant in California specifically, and 20,000 sterilizations, which is one-third of the total number performed in the United States, took place in California. Eugenics is often associated with Nazi Germany, but Hitler actually was inspired by what was going on in California. I also read about women in California prisons who had been sterilized without their knowledge or consent really not that long ago at all. And in learning about this, I found out about Cynthia Chandler, a lawyer who has been fighting for social justice her whole career. And with Justice Now, one of the organizations she had started, she exposed a series of statewide crimes in the California prisons from dangerously inadequate health care to sexual assault to these coercive sterilizations, primarily targeting women of color. For some more context, it's important to mention Kelly Dillon, who had been in prison for protecting herself and her children from her abusive husband and was one of the women who had been sterilized against her will. She had reached out to Cynthia when she wasn't feeling well after an unrelated procedure, and when Cynthia obtained her medical records, she found out that she had been sterilized. Kelly became the first sterilization survivor to sue the California Department of Correction and Rehabilitation for damages in hopes of holding them accountable and was instrumental in helping Cynthia and Justice Now get SB 1135, a bill that prohibits sterilization for the purpose of birth control and prison passed in California. A film has recently come out that follows these events. It's called Belly of the Beast, and I highly recommend that you find a way to watch it. This was a really long intro, but I felt like it was important. Let's get into it. Hi, Cynthia. Welcome to the Bold Moves Only podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. I watched Belly of the Beast the other day, and there were so many shocking moments, even after having known a decent amount about what happened. And I'm looking forward to the event that I helped to organize with the Human Rights Conflict and Peace Initiative at the Graduate Institute Geneva, where we're hosting a film screening and a panel discussion and getting some feedback from people who come from all over the world. Um, and there's a lot to discuss, but I want to start by asking you about your first nonprofit that you started, which was the Women's Positive Legal Action Network advocating on behalf of HIV-positive women in prison. So what initially inspired you to work with incarcerated women? Uh, well, short answer or long answer? No, no I'll do the short one. I, um, oh, I had been a on-again, off-again runaway when I was in high school. And uh, that, and I'm going to age myself and say that that was at the, beginning 
of the height of the HIV epidemic um, in the 80s, mid 80s. And uh, I became acutely aware of how racism and classism and also frankly, um, homophobia and transphobia all intersect to make the same people vulnerable to policing and imprisonment as are vulnerable to premature death through um, epidemics like HIV or now COVID. When I uh, transformed my life and got out of that world, let's just say, and decided to sort of live my life very differently, I felt an enormous responsibility to do whatever I could to try to uh, prevent women and girls and specifically women and girls of color from being pulled into the criminal legal system and also facing um, death through a myriad of, of forms of oppression. And so I was really angry as a teenager and I was like, how am I going to do this? And I took that anger and worked really hard to channel it into making change, uh, both in college and then later in graduate school and then law school. And by the time I got out of law school, I realized that even though many years had spanned in that process, um, there still wasn't really anyone looking at and advocating on behalf of uh, women and girls who are HIV positive and pulled into the criminal legal system. And so uh, I got funding to launch the first, I got seed money to launch the first organization doing that kind of advocacy work in the world um, in 1995. And that, and I, I didn't get that much money because honestly, you know, if you think about what money is out there for women and girls of color in the criminal legal system and with HIV, you know, there was basically none then. I got a little bit of money and not even really enough money to pay myself or to cover baseline expenses, but I got a little bit of money and I knew I wanted it to be a grassroots organization. I knew I wanted to help build up and empower people who are experiencing it myself, not put my views down on other people they were experiencing it. And I knew I had been away from that epicenter of those problems for long enough that I wasn't really a peer anymore. I had transcended to the level of professional, right? So I wanted that work to truly be grassroots. So I spent the first year meeting and building relationships with leaders inside California's women's prisons who were living with HIV. Most of those leaders were were jailhouse lawyers they were lay ministers who ministered to each other their peers they were people who were peer educators who were self-taught and keeping each other alive and um they were incredibly powerful activists and and so i always tell people that my, i learned how to practice the law and be a lawyer and be an activist from people in prison um those were my mentors they were my they were my aunties <laughs> and they taught me everything I learned. I've learned in my life, frankly, about dignity and loyalty and, um, and how to maintain a sense of the self in the face of enormous um, challenge. And so, you know, honestly, that work was so inspiring because of the people I got to work with and alongside who were really fighting to keep themselves alive, but also fighting to keep, you know, fighting to maintain a sense of community in the face of incredible state violence. And that, that work, you know, really shaped me into the, the kind of activist and lawyer that I wanted to be. And that's kind of how I got there.
So I'm the product of folks inside who trained me up. Can you talk a bit more about why it was so important to have people on the inside on your board? This was one of the only organizations, if not the only organization to do something like this. Those original people, so there were 20 people who I originally recruited who became eventually the founding board members of Justice Now. So Justice Now was launched in 2000. And, and those 20 people, we worked collaboratively with Women's Plan and we started getting more and more frustrated over how we were dealing with the same issues over and over again, right? Uh, and that and that first nonprofit was more geared towards advocacy around baseline care and keeping people alive. And we were watching our friends and comrades die every week. And we were facing the same challenges without feeling like we were making a real dent. And so we were all thirsty to have a bigger, bigger systemic impact. And I paired up with another young activist attorney named Cassandra Shaler. And together with uh, that first core group of activists in prison, we merged women's plan into what became Justice Now. And that first 20, those 20 women, uh, a subset of them of about 15 who were then still surviving by 2000, um, became our original founding board. And uh, yeah, since then, all of them have passed away. So, <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's part of the, pain of doing this kind of work is that when you work alongside people who are um, facing all kinds of oppression, people die young and they die in circumstances that should never happen. And the organization has continued to have that same structure. Um, it's fully led and run by people who are directly impacted by imprisonment. Belly of the Beast followed you uncovering a series of statewide crimes from dangerously inadequate health care to sexual assault to coercive sterilizations, primarily targeting women of color. But this could not have been possible without Kelly Dillon. Can you talk about how you came to discover Kelly and her story and how vital she has been throughout this entire process? Sure. I mean, Kelly is the, if for folks, I, I encourage folks to see Belly of the Beast. I mean, it follows this, it, the narrative story arc follows Kelly's real campaign for justice. And it's been an honor to help her with that campaign. Um, there's another unsung hero that I want to just give a little shout out to, which is a woman named Teresa Martinez. And, uh, and it's relevant because Teresa, and it's actually relevant to where you are in Geneva, um, Teresa Martinez was one of our founding board members and she became incredibly, incredibly interested in human rights law. And she became enormously interested in the mission of the United Nations and human rights treaties and geeked out on it. And this was spectacular because Teresa was um, only formally educated through about age 10. Um, in California schools. Uh, she had been, a, frankly, a shot caller or leader in the Latina gangs. And she uh, started realizing that she needed to understand how to empower herself and her, and her community of people inside. And she got this incredible thirst as she started working with, with Women's Plan and then Justice Now, and this incredible thirst to always learn more and more and more. She paired up with another young attorney named Robin Levy, who had a dream of doing human rights work in a very different way than classically had been done in the United Nations. And instead of sort of sending in human rights documenters, almost like they're space aliens, to land on places where people are impacted and to report 
from uh, the outside perspective. Instead, Robin had this dream of training up people who are experiencing human rights abuses and giving them the tools. And so we welcomed Robin into Justice Now to work with Teresa specifically to make this real happen. And so Robin and Teresa together started training up basically a little army of people inside California's women's prisons on international human rights law and how to document abuses. And they started surveying and spreading the word all around the California women's prisons. I think they trained up about 150 people and they started looking at reproductive health because that was one of the key issues that folks on the inside wanted to document was how the right, their right to family was being destroyed by the state um, through, frankly, they would sort of liken the prison to Nora Plant in that prisons keep people sterilized because they separate them from their families during their reproductive years. And they were documenting a lot of things. And that's why when Kelly Dillon had a surgery, an abdominal surgery that seemed to take way too long to recover from and where she was having very strange symptoms from it, she reached out to Teresa and was like, hey, what's this group that you're doing all this work with and could they help me? And Teresa, gave them Justice Nell's contact information. Uh, Kelly wrote to me and, and sent a letter saying, you know, explaining she didn't know what had happened, but these are all her symptoms. And when I got that letter, I read it and I immediately thought, wow, you know, here's a woman who's in her early twenties and it sounds like she's been sterilized. Like it sounds like she's gone through menopause by what her symptoms are and what in the world is going on. And that started a real effort to try to get Kelly's medical records. The Department of Corrections was not cooperating in providing those medical records. It took many months to get them. And when we finally got them, I read them and realized very quickly that Kelly had been, um, during that surgery, had been uh, sterilized without her knowledge. And I realized that, you know, Kelly had no idea of the scope of what had been done to her. And so that's really how Kelly and I met, which is, maybe one of the grossest way two human beings can meet each other was I, I had to go into the prison and meet her face to face and tell her what I had learned. It's a reflection of Kelly's fortitude and just brilliance that she not only obviously took that information and was devastated, she also very quickly was able to see the systemic implications of, of, it all. She could understand that what it meant that she as a Black woman had had this done to her and had it hidden from her by a state actor, right? She also understood how significant it was that we were both young women. I mean, this was 20 years ago. I was about 30. She was in her early 20s. Somehow, right, I, as a white, educated woman was able to read her medical records and Kelly couldn't even access them as a black woman in prison. And so Kelly in our first conversation brought this up and she was like, you know, it's also messed up. It's messed up that you're able to know more about my body than I am. And, and it started this really profound series of conversations where I felt so honored that she was willing to even go there and transparently have those conversations about race and the, and the systemic implications on our relationship, on what had happened to her, on her ability to have rights, effectuate her rights. And I decided that I was gonna make sure that Justice Now prioritized doing whatever it took to support her in what she would feel would actually affect justice for her. 
Um, and she started, you know, relying on the pathways that Teresa had forged before her to identify other women who had also been sterilized or suspected that they had been sterilized because it's hard to know if you're not, you know, conscious at the time <laughs> that that's happening to you in a surgery. And pretty soon, you know, Kelly started identifying a whole slew of people who also were sterilized, about a dozen women who were sterilized during other abdominal surgeries and sterilized without their knowledge and consent. And then, and from there, we started hearing because of Kelly's network she was building about stories of uh, women who were being asked while they were going into labor and delivery, having children in prison, if they wanted, if they would be if they wish to be sterilized during labor and delivery, which actually in, in the United States, it's illegal to ask people when you're going into birth, right at that moment, it's illegal to ask people if they want to be sterilized because the idea is that you're under such duress in that moment and so much pain that that's not a time to attempt to procure consent to a permanent surgery that would remove a fundamental right. Um, and so, uh, with Kelly and Teresa's help, um, we started interviewing hundreds of people who had recently given birth in California's women's prisons, and we found that all of them had been asked that, and we found that all of them had said no, they didn't want to be sterilized. We found not a single person who said that they wanted to be sterilized. But then we started looking for secondary proof and did a series of Public Record Act requests and quickly learned that they were not only sterilizing one or two or three people during labor and delivery, but sometimes one or two or three people in a day. And clearly none of the people knew that they had been sterilized. And that was really the beginning of this whole campaign. And I, you know, Kelly learned, Kelly, Kelly was sterilized approximately 20 years ago. So we've been working on this for 20 years and uh, Belly of the Beast captured the last 10 years of the campaign. Um, but it's been a long process. And some of the things that you just said relate to something you said in the film. Um, you said that you feel that your relationship with Kelly both embodies and transcends racism in America. Can you elaborate a bit more on that? Well, yeah, I mean, but for racism, we wouldn't have met. Um, you know, honestly, if she had been a white woman, she never would have even been convicted of what she was convicted of which was a domestic violence crime, she most likely would have had a, been seen as having a reasonable defense to the crime that she committed and defending herself against a batterer. She, I don't believe, would have been sterilized had she not been Black. Um, when we were able to find race, racial demographics on the people who are sterilized in California's prisons um, in that time period, that almost all of the people sterilized were darker skinned women of color. So not even black women, but darker skinned black women like Kelly or transgender men of color who uh, were also sterilized. So I think, yeah, and we certainly wouldn't have come together had she been able to access information about her own body, had people uh, respected her enough to give her baseline information. And then we never would have come together had I not had all the privileges that I've had because of my race and my class and my education. But, and I hope that when people see the film, I mean, the second piece of it is, I hope when people see the film that the message that folks get is way bigger than our relationship or uh, these sort of negative things that brought us together. I hope what people get is 
is an inspiration to believe that we all have the power to make change no matter where we are. That if we band together across these kinds of barriers and boundaries, that we all have the power to make really radical systemic change and institutional change take place. Um, and it, it just, you know, the challenge I then put out to everyone who sees the film is to find something you can do every day to challenge white supremacy. And I don't care if it's small or tiny, um, just find something that one can do and, and put a foot forward towards making it happen. That kind of answers uh, the question that I ask everyone towards the end, um, but, but, that, but that was great. Um, so, so what happened to these women were human rights abuses, but at the same time, these women aren't even really treated as human. When Kelly explains what happened to her, she said all she was on that operating table was a number, like cattle. And also, when the story dropped, there were many people who didn't find this to be a problem and even encouraged the practice. And my jaw dropped when in the end of the movie, the unidentified nurse with that, you know, covered her face um, said that she wouldn't have operated on these women had she known had she had known that it was illegal. But she didn't necessarily think that it was the wrong thing to do because it would save the state money. Why? do so many people not afford these women any kind of compassion? Oh, so many layers to that. Um, yeah, fundamentally, I think it's about white supremacy combined with gender oppression um, on a big meta arch. Um, and that's, you, you can't choose the economy over human life and, and human potential unless you're devaluing that human life. You just, you can't, right? So there's there's a force that's devaluing those specific people. And it's not just anyone, everyone who goes to prison, right? Especially in the United States, it's most people in prison are from a very small number of communities of color. And in fact, in California's women's prisons, 80% of people in California's women's prisons come from about three small communities in Southern California. Um, and Kelly is from one of those communities, which is Watts, which is a, a small-ish uh, Black enclave, primarily Black enclave in Los Angeles. So we felt, and it's so fascinating that this podcast is coming out through Geneva. I mean, we really felt that what we were watching was genocide by a very conservative United Nations definition. We were seeing people targeted for sterilization who were part of a very small defined community that was targeted for both policing, imprisonment, and then sterilization. Um, and what we were watching was like the genocide of those communities. And then in terms of what made people not take it seriously, um, you, I think that there's such a devaluation of of black and brown communities in the United States that the lessons learned about the horrors of eugenics had been um, rendered so invisible that no one we talked to in the beginning even knew what eugenics was. So I would go and meet with legislators to say, hey, we got this data. We want your help to stop these abuses from happening. And one of two things would happen. Either they would kind of think I was a conspiracy theory nut and I was just completely lunatic and I was treated like a heretic. 
or even with the data, right? Or there would be a pause and, and there would be a comment like, well, surely those women don't really want to have children, do they? Like, I mean, you know, they don't have much money. They're in prison. I mean, surely they don't want to have kids. So there is this also this like incredible paternalistic sense that they were the women themselves were being done a favor, not just that our state economy was being helped by, you know, preventing low income children from being born, but that the women themselves were being done a great service. When we started looking into the sterilization specifically of pregnant women, a whistleblower came to us uh, and, I, and it was sort of different than the whistleblower who went uh, came forward in the ICE detention scandal recently. And it was in 2007, a whistleblower approached me and said, hey, I know that you and Justice Now are doing a lot of work trying to document sterilization issues and the weirdest thing happened at a Department of Corrections meeting. And I was like, oh, tell me. And the whistleblower was like, well, they had the meeting on a, a meeting of all the, the people who are supposed to be responsible for conditions in the women's prisons. It was called the Gender Responsive Strategies Committee of the Department of Corrections. They had a gender responsive meeting. And at that meeting, they talked about the cost efficacy of sterilizing people in the women's prisons during labor and delivery. And it was a meeting agenda item. And they talked about it. And the whistleblower said, you know, and it felt wrong. I don't exactly know why it feels wrong, but it felt wrong. And so I was like, well, that's eugenics. And she said, what's you, not you, it's not utopic. How can, and wait, she said, wait, she said, no, it's not a really good thing. It's a bad thing. And I'm like, wait, I didn't say utopic. I said eugenic. <laughs> she had no idea what the word eugenic was. Absolutely no, like none. Um, and that whistleblower was someone in the medical profession and was the feminist in the medical profession and had no knowledge at all, zero of what eugenics was. And I remember like early on in the campaign, I would have conversations with people in the prisoner rights world in the state capital. And multiple times people would say like, I, when you use that word eugenic, I don't really know what that means. And it just kind of sounds like vagina. It makes me feel really uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, it was almost like I was being accused of screaming, you know, vagina down this halls of justice or something. I, I don't know. It was so strange. Um, but that later I came to realize that's just how profoundly uh, racist these institutions had, were and are that, that the history of the, the shameful history of eugenics was so lost, it wasn't even preserved, right? People didn't even know what the term was. Um, and so we had to spend a lot of time just even coaching up our allies to understand what it was um, and that it was bad. Um, and then we could start in on decision makers and lawmakers. Uh, and we actually, I do want to say also uh, how awesome it is to be able to do this talk with you today because our first allies were actually people from the international community. Um, it wasn't people from the United States. And, and in fact, we were able to generate a huge amount of political will because of um, a series of reports from the Center on Investigative Reporting, which was covered in the film. But the only reason that that reporter found us and found the work we were doing was because the United Nations uh, sent a special rapporteur on violence against women to interview the documenters we had trained up in prison to talk about this issue. And there was one obscure newspaper article 
that got published on that visit and that the UN was seriously looking at sterilization abuse inside California's women's prisons. And that's what generated the political will that we were eventually able to get real change to happen. Yeah, I mean, I, as I said, I really didn't know a whole lot about eugenics or the history of eugenics prior to doing that research paper. And the history is insane. It is absolutely insane. But what kind of retaliation do people get from providing this kind of information? Um, so in doing the work we did, we had to take a uh, huge safeguard sort of measures to try to shield people's identities and to provide people with some level of protection. So uh, the documenters inside who were circulating surveys had a system to code and hide um, who was who in terms of who was being interviewed so that if those surveys were confiscated by the Department of Corrections staff that they wouldn't be able to link stories to names, right? Um, and, and to harm people. And certainly the kind of retaliation people experienced, and certainly the documenters were pretty out there though, right? And they couldn't really shield themselves from that kind of retaliation. And people experienced things like having all of their mail just permanently disappear for extended periods of time, which really meant cutting them off from their families and communities outside. People experienced um, being told that, that you know, being denied medical care themselves, um, and uh, certainly since our efforts to pass uh, a sunshine statute, making it clear to Department of Corrections staff that they shouldn't be sterilizing people, um, since I passed that bill that, that we were able to pass has been used as a um, justification for denying reproductive care in general. You know, so, so guards and medical staff alike will tell people, oh, well, we would have been able to help you, but now we can't now that all those like uppity inmates made this law change, as if the law change had anything to do with baseline reproductive care um, provision, which it didn't. I guess, you know, and this is sort of like just a, a special call out to folks who are doing organizing with people in total institutions in general. I think it's really important when one as an outside activist does that kind of work. It's always really important to be transparent and clear that you can't offer protection from retaliation. Because I think for people to be able to consent in an informed manner to being part of that kind of organizing and activism, you, activists have to be really clear from the outside that you, you know you would hope you have the best intentions of shielding people from retaliation, but you can't. And there can be dire consequences. Um, the first person that I partnered with in doing the work with HIV positive women in prison with women's plan, was an amazing peer educator named Rosemary Willoughby, who uh, was um, HIV positive and, and, and also hepatitis C positive. And she was very public about that. So I can say her name and say, disclose that. And she was, she had developed relationships with treatment educators around those illnesses on the outside free world. And she was distributing information to peers on the inside. And she had educated up a whole team of people, of her peers that were then demanding better care and treatment from the chief medical officer and other doctors. And she generally became a royal pain in the ass to the chief medical officer at the prison where she was at, right? Cause he was like, shit, you know, this woman is like pushing everyone to push me to do this and that and the other thing she's paying the ass. So what did he do? He um, 
falsified a document alleging that she had been exposed to tuberculosis and tested positive for tuberculosis, which she did not. He had her shipped out, summarily shipped out to a different prison that had a tuberculosis, tuberculosis isolation chamber to be sent there to be given mandated tuberculosis drugs. So she was literally summarily yanked off the yard, hauled away and disappeared. No one knew where she went. He did not transfer her medical file with her because she really didn't have tuberculosis, right? So she was sent off to this other prison and administered tuberculosis medications, but she in fact did have liver disease and tuberculosis medications are incredibly liver toxic. So she was administered high doses of tuberculosis medication for several weeks. And as a result, her liver failed and she died. And um, I represented her family in a successful wrongful death lawsuit, but the reality was that she was dead, right? And that sent an enormous chilling message to other activists who knew her well. And the chief medical officer who did that was not removed from his position entirely. He was just demoted and became the chief doctor who served the, the patients with infectious diseases. So the specific, he has specifically killed a woman and then went on to become the doctor that would serve all of those peers that she had been trying to keep alive. And all those women knew it. So imagine the level of terror, right? That those women were experiencing knowing that he was then their physician. So I think for me, and I, you know, I was like 27 years old, 26, 27, when this was happening, that was like an incredibly formative experience in my life, obviously. I, from that point forward, I was just always really clear. Like we can't protect people. People have to know what risks they're taking. They know them better than we do on the outside. Um, and all we can really do is constantly re-ask over and over again, what can we do to shield you? What can we do to help you? What do you need us to do to help protect you? Um, and so that's just been my commitment from that point forward. And the doctors now that took part of the operations in these coercive sterilizations also have not faced any consequences, correct? No, we filed uh, complaints with the Medical Review Board, which is the licensure body uh, for doctors in California for their medical licenses. They decided not to uh, discipline the doctors because they felt that the doctors had been encouraged to do the sterilizations by higher up levels of state administrators. And to be clear, in the movie, we kind of focus on one of those doctors, but he was really a, a convenient boogeyman to have a to have a villain in the film. In many ways, in reality, the sterilizations that we were able to document happening between. Uh, 2006 and 2010 and certainly the window is bigger than that but just focusing in on that window um those sterilizations were performed at nine different hospitals in california including two teaching facilities that were that are affiliated with the university of california medical like in sort of in institution right so in fact, one of the problems we had in finding co-counsel to help us with lawsuits, one of the reasons we ended up doing a legislative remedy instead of doing a legal case remedy, um, was that we couldn't find any big law firms that weren't conflicted out because they all had represented those different medical institutions at different times because there were so many involved in that um, ill behavior. So the medical abuse was rampant. It was completely not understood to be inappropriate within the medical community. 
and the doctors were have not been held to task, nor have the higher level officials who directed them, right? So if we take the medical board at its word that there were higher level people who encouraged that, the question then is, well, okay, so who were they? And exactly how did they encourage this? And none of those higher up officials have been impacted. I think it's it's worthy to mention that Kamala Harris, who is now vice president in the United States, was the attorney general um, in California at the time that these abuses started to really be exposed. And the attorney general's office could have really decided to treat this like a serious crime and a serious civil rights violation and could have stepped in and prosecuted it on its own. And instead it, it did not. And in fact, cooperated in limiting the scope of the inquiry and shielded many of the actors who were involved. Hmm. Well, maybe something positive. You mentioned the bill that you had been working so hard on. <laughs> SB 1135, the bill that prohibits sterilization for the purpose of birth control in prison. Uh, what what did that mean for you when it passed and all the people that worked so hard for that to happen? Oh, I mean, that was so that was the sunshine statute that I said before. It was designed to just clarify for everybody working for the Department of Corrections, like, hey, y'all, you cannot sterilize people for the purpose of birth control when they're in prison. And the reason, right, is because you don't want to ask people to permanently give up this fundamental right to family in a coerced environment where every thing people do is controlled by threat of force. You know, when you eat is controlled by threat of force. Where you walk is controlled by threat of force. In that kind of environment, you can never give informed consent purely, right? And so it's okay to imagine that someone would be asked to give informed consent that's imperfect if their life depends on it, but it's not okay if they're giving up a fundamental right forever, right? So we want everyone to be clear on that. It also made the state of California have to keep data on sterilizations it's doing moving forward um, and disaggregate that data based on race and publish it on their website annually. So it made it much more difficult for them to continue this pattern of abusive sterilization. It felt like there was a moment in history where it actually worked out. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> it's like a blip in time where you're like, yes. <laughs> And yet it also felt imperfect. I mean, Kelly talks in the, the movie about how it's it's not really her happy ending, right? I mean, there was still not an apology issued. There was still not any kind of reparations for the people who were harmed. And the people who were sterilized have still yet to be notified that they were sterilized. You know, we figured out Kelly was sterilized almost by fluke, right? She had some suspicions. She contacted me. I got the medical records. We figured it out. Most of the sterilizations happened either again during abdominal surgeries or during C-sections with giving birth. People had no idea that they were sterilized. And what we know from the state audits that we were able to get done is that most of the sterilizations were done without consent forms being signed or doctors signing the consent forms, or they were done on monolingual Spanish speaker patients without interpreters being used. So we have every reason to believe most folks don't even know that they were sterilized, which means they could be going through life trying to have children, having no idea why they can't. They could be devastated about thinking that maybe they've done something that's caused their own infertility. Like it's a continuing act of state violence that they have not been given the information about what's been done to their own bodies. So these things were left undone. 
we now have a new bill that's in front of the California legislature that would both provide reparations for people historically sterilized under California eugenic laws up until 1979, and then also more contemporaneously inside California's prisons. And it also would mandate that the state uh, notify it would mandate that the state call through all the medical records of every surgery they've done in California's women's prisons and notify people that were sterilized, that they were in fact sterilized and puts a burden on the state to do that. Um, and I think that would be a big step, right, towards justice in that it would create a level of accountability and acknowledgement of the harms that have been done. And I think without that kind of acknowledgement and accountability were doomed to have history repeat itself, right? Just like how uh, police killings happen over and over and over again in the United States when there isn't real accountability and there's no real bite. We can expect the sterilization abuse to continue. And in fact, you know, I just recently went through the data in the last few years of sterilizations that the Department of Corrections is supposed to track. And there's at least three or four sterilizations that are on their face and their data questionable and mimic the conditions in the ICE detention facilities. You know, for example, one person was sterilized because they had an ovarian cyst on one ovary. Why were they sterilized if they had an ovarian cyst on one ovary? That makes no sense. And this summer uh, in, uh, in Southern California in Los Angeles, there was an ex ex exposed pattern of giving uh, boys in county detention there, uh, juvenile detention, and um, estrogen therapy, ostensibly to treat ADHD, but that's contraindicated. And really, they were being chemically um, castrated by, given, uh, by being given estrogen, which, mind you, at their teen years, when they're going through growth spurts, can have long-term health consequences and stunting their growth and weakening their bones. So it's you know, this is happening. And we also know our, our film team um, has used independent investigators, and we've been able to document that at least eight different states are, are routinely sterilizing women during labor and delivery in its prisons. Um, so we know that this abuse is rampant, and we need a model of accountability. Um, and this bill in California is probably our best shot at, at creating a model that could be replicated across this country. So I guess I would encourage your, uh, re your listeners to go to bellyofthebeastfilm.com and sign our petition. We have almost 13,000 people who have signed as of today, um, demanding that the state of California, again, notify survivors as well as provide reparations and every signature counts from anywhere you are in the world. Uh, so please, again, go to bellyofthebeastfilm.com and, and sign our petition. It's on the homepage. And you already provided a very good answer for this, but I'm going to end <laughs> on it again anyways, because I always do. Uh -huh. So what would you say to someone who wants to make a positive change, but doesn't know where to start? Mm. Oh, okay. Um, the first thing I would say, well, the easiest thing you could do is go to that website, go to bellyofthebeastfilm.com and sign our petition. You could start there. <laughs> it could have a real impact on people's lives. Um, Beyond that, again, I don't, I don't care how small it is. It could be that you see two of your friends or family members having a conflict. If you intervene in a way that helps them resolve that conflict without calling the police, you've done a significant act of service. If you do anything at all that challenges uh, white supremacy or white nationalism that you see rising around you, 
if you even just ask someone to justify themselves or challenge someone's thinking, you've done a huge service, right? There, it's like, all it really takes is for everyone to take small actions to make change happen. Um, and of course, if you wanna do something uh, directly on point with this issue, please think about hosting a screening of Belly of the Beast. Um, uh, we can help provide uh, speakers, connect you with folks in your community who are doing that kind of work of challenging human rights abuses. And, you know, think about how you can spark conversations for change in your own community. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining the Bold Nose Only podcast. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, thank you all for listening. Make sure to go to bellyofthebeast.com and sign that petition. I hope that you have a great day and let's be bold.